0: Welcome to this episode of Another World is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom, and get ready to emancipate your mind and radically expand your imagination as we present all the most exciting and revolutionary possibilities of our times, both locally and globally. I hope you enjoy it, and as always, solidarity today, tomorrow, and forever. Welcome to a new episode of Another World is Potable. Uh, my name is Peter Bloom and I have a, an amazing guest. Um, someone who kind of, I, I don't know how he does it because he, he brings three aspects that I think are incredibly important together in ways that are very unique. Um, I think we talk a lot on the show about commonings and the commons and a different type of economy. Um, But also, as some of you may know, uh, my own research is on kind of post-humanism and the relationship between ourselves and technology. Um, But what I I think our guest Zach uh, Walsh does uh, really well is also probably to my mind, one of the most brilliant in thinking, getting us to think a little bit about what is actually the relationships that are involved in different types of economies? What does it actually mean to be part of a commons. And not just in terms of thinking about it as almost a SimCity, city planning type, but what would it actually mean almost on the inside in terms of our spirituality, in terms of our emotions, in terms of just how we would live our lives differently and relate to each other differently and relate to the world differently. Um, so I think Zach is one of the people who asks big questions and then somehow seems to answer them, <laughs> which is no easy task. So Zach Walsh, thank you uh, so much for coming on the show. Um, Before getting into some of the things you work on, such as the contemplative commons and the contemplative social science and also this idea of economy and transition, I'd be really interested because, you know, I mean, your work is not easy to categorize by any means. I mean, there's so much there. If you wanted to just kind of take us through what's a little bit of your background and how did you start getting into thinking about these really wide-ranging multidisciplinary issues?
1: yeah um thank you peter for having me on the podcast um thank you for that very generous introduction um and for starting in this way um it's always funny when you ask uh how to narrate um a journey such as that um so i guess i'll, I'll start sort of in my formative educational uh years and I think, in in one way to answer that question is just that you know I had a sort of love of learning, which consists of uh, really looking broadly at um, all different disciplines, uh, all different perspectives, and so um, especially starting in sort of high school, right? Like when we, as as a you know younger sort of adolescents, tend to finally focus our studies because we have the choice to do so. I, I liked to err on the side of uh, what stretched me the most um, and how could I learn most broadly about any number of topics. So um, I started getting into area studies um, and language um, as windows or portals to other worlds, right? And so I started Mm. taking Chinese and Latin and French. um, And uh, when I had the privilege of traveling outside the United States, really for the first time on my own, um, when I graduated high school. I chose just something so radically different. And and so I went to Botswana, Africa and and met uh, San Tribes in Kalahari Desert and spent some time um, doing some service-oriented work. And um, that really imprinted on me um, a larger world. And that, I think, persists to this day. Then in college... um, I went the next step and majored in Chinese just to radically uh, reorient my perspective from Western Civ to Eastern Civ. Um, I was really interested in, in one respect with getting deeper into Western Civ with the great books curriculums, but I, I really felt at the same time that what we were given in school uh, for my context in the United States was really um, just one side of the story. right? Um, so I wanted to expand my mind um, and then after college, I really also wanted to engage experiential learning, um, not just book learning. Um, so when I finally had the opportunity and the freedom to do that and, and be on my own, I um, traveled to East Asia and spent a formative period of about five years um, in China and Taiwan and then also traveling extensively in, South, in Southeast Asia And at that point, for me, it was also not just um, an opportunity to experience other cultures, politics, economics, histories, but also spiritualities, um, because I hadn't, until that time, had any kind of religious upbringing from my, um, especially parents and nuclear family, but I was in some sense always interested in that because when I was younger philosophy was one of my favorite subjects that asked deeper questions about the fundamentals of reality um and so I had explored up until that point you know in my education these things and I and I was having more and more an affinity toward eastern ways of thinking that were process and relational which you notice now appear really predominantly in my writing um because it's really just part of my worldview, but um When I was in East Asia, it became important to learn from the traditions themselves, to begin supplementing my education through practice, through discipline. So I ended up, um, after a few years of exploring in China, different, especially Taoist and Buddhist monasteries and looking for educational opportunities, I went to Taiwan and got a master's degree in Buddhist studies at a Buddhist college um, with... um, mostly buddhist monastics um learning chinese in that context and then yeah basically sort of became a western convert buddhist um to some degree but was at the same time sort of dis sort of dissatisfied with also what was missing in that context right because i held a lot of different commitments that didn't feel fully um Reflected and aligned with uh, the people in those communities who tended towards a more um, myopic focus on change from the inside out and not from the outside mm. in. And, and I, you know, so, so then it <laughs> became a real personal and spiritual and professional struggle to figure out well, how do these mind and matter, this sort of traditional dualisms, um, not feed into academic discourse, but really in, in practical change making? activities and how do I take this sense of spirituality that I'd cultivated and inform um, it in real-world political action and who do I, you know who do I find to to form community around these kinds of ideas um, it was in that period that I started doing some work in contemplative studies which at the time seemed the most progressive and advanced um, in answering some of those questions um, mm-hmm. was not without its problems but it it led me to this idea that you mentioned of the contemplative social sciences. Um, and the reason that that became interesting was, in, in the contemplative fields, what I liked was it was by default a field that emerged um, you know 30 40 years ago out of the work of francisco varela and other really forward-thinking people who were part of this sort of second and third wave of cybernetics who were interested in mind matter non-dual post-dual um approaches to society at large not just uh their own cultivation and that drew me and i wanted to do this kind of interdisciplinary exchange um but at the same time, when you become part of that community, you realize it has a lot of, it has a lot of trappings, right? Um, people still came in with an orientation uh, that wasn't as integrative as I would have hoped. Um, so I thought contemplative social sciences was a way to merge some really interesting social theory that I didn't see usually used within the field to bring out a much more active orientation towards societal issues, um, and still maintain that really strong connection to this interdisciplinary study of the mind that was engaged also in religious, but also scientific inquiry. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, I could tell the story story in the last five years, how I um, moved on from that to something uh, a bit different, but I'll pause here in case you want (laughs) to.
0: No, I mean, I, I think that's that's a really incredible journey and, and, you know, the work that you've been doing, I mean, I, I think it would be interesting to better understand in many ways. I mean, it sounds like, you know, you were in the process of kind of formulating some really important questions and you were looking at different ways in which to approach this. And I'm wondering, in a sense, because what you're doing, and we'll get to some of the more kind of in-depth theories about it, but what would you say that those kind of fundamental questions are? And why have you been moving more towards two kind of perspectives, one contemplative theory and, and perspectives in the social sciences, and then we'll get to the commonings that aren't always so easily put together. So, I mean, I think that's like, we like, thinks that sometimes what's more interesting than necessarily the answers which are shifting are, the kind of dynamic questions and fundamental questions that are guiding us. So it'd be interesting, like, if you took us a little bit into, you know, what are, what do you think are the questions that we need to be asking, or that at least you're asking that have kind of yielded such interesting insights?
1: Yeah, again, great question. Thank you. Um, And so let me expand on something I said earlier, but this also draws out something you said about your relation to sort of post-human thought. Um, So a moment ago, I mentioned this sort of, personal, spiritual, and professional struggle with the dichotomy that often you find in communities, but often also discourse around the sort of split between inner and outer, mind and matter, uh, you know, nature, culture. Um, There's so many dualisms often of, you know, many of which are implicated in uh, systems of oppression and which I I understood to be really enacted and instantiated in a lot of our institutions and our systems in ways that, disturbed me and um, felt like uh, an issue that needed to be resolved um, again for personal spiritual and professional reasons um, in which I think probably will last my entire career um, because you know so many others as well have the same questions and, and and you know struggled to find better answers but never you know there is no final answer uh, in any sense but I think one of the questions is that is how do we understand the inheritance that we have um, been so acculturated into um, within modernity around these splits? What Whitehead called the bifurcation of nature. Mm. Um, and I and I talked about that in the context of contemplative studies, um, but also my experience in Buddhist studies, uh, where you have sort of very naive, I, I think, theories of change. Where there's really a sort of unidirectional movement from the inner to the outer, and you find people in those more spiritually minded communities thinking, oh, if if, if everybody just sat and meditated or, um, you know, changed their hearts and minds, then the world would change. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, On the converse, you see social activists or organizers or politicians or uh, people who like to think of themselves as like systems thinkers or systems changers, change agents, right, who really focus on the outer world and often have a lot of um, problematic uh, personal, interpersonal, um, social um, dynamics within their movements and within, within themselves that um, go left unrecognized and which reemerge um, in ways that create serious obstacles and impediments. And so it just, it became so clear to me that this was an important integration point and also a very historical one to my, to my earlier point because mm. modernity itself, I think, if we just take the crises that are at the forefront of everybody's uh, minds that, you know, climate change, social inequality, the, the complete lack of democracy today Uh, that we're struggling with. These are fundamentally, I think, at a deeper level, um, you know, taking my background of philosophy and and religious studies and such, crises of perception, crises of um, how we understand ourselves in relationship to each other, how we understand ourselves in relation to the natural world, um, and crises of of a larger scale systems um, in which these perceptions and cultures become instantiated, um, and then taken as given, right? And and everybody sort of forgets the underpinnings of those and and forgets, I think, often that there is a larger field of possibility. Um, And so cultural Mm -hmm. and personal and spiritual transformation is part and parcel of larger systems, political scale transformation. And so the personal and the political are intertwined and so it's just sort of my life's mission to figure out how to create uh, more equitable sustainable systems and to do that we can't focus on either the inner and the outer we have to do both
0: mm, mm, mm. i mean one of the really interesting parts about this idea of the inner and outer is that it Kind of demands from us, right, to not only think about things anew, but to experience them anew. Mm. And traditionally, I think that that one of the ways that that is difficult is how do you really experience something viscerally that doesn't exist yet, mm. right? Um, and I think that one of the aspects that is is also very things is that we we do live in a very voyeuristic culture, right? I mean, it's a culture. Um, that is very much, um, I'll experience this as a consumer. I'll experience this as someone just watching. Um, so when we speak about something like the commons or uh, uh, you know or commenting, I think that you're right in the sense that you kind of have two modes about this. You either have this way in which you just have it as almost like a kind of thought process, right? A thought experiment. <laughs> Like, Mm -hmm. what would a different world look like? Um, Or you have it as these kind of, and, you know, I say this with uh, all huge, huge respect for the work that's been done, but these kind of very localized Mm -hmm. and confined experiments with shared living. Um, And when we say shared living, we mean, you know, an existence that is very much around collective value creation and you know, a life that is quite different than the kind of atomistic individual capitalist life from which we live. Mm-hmm. And I, I certainly have thought about ways in which you use VR and augmented reality and things in order to give us a different way of putting people in a place where they can actually experience you know, what these different ones would look. But what I find interesting about what you said is that it seems to me that the contemplative and the ways in which you use it rigorously is a type of commoning praxis, if mm. you will. It's a way in which you're not surrendering the need to create this in your own life, nor are you surrendering the importance of it as a you know, imaginative action, but that you're actually proposing something a bit more rigorous and something that is about practice-based imagining or practice-based reflection mm. in a way that doesn't really fit within the modes of modernity of you know mind body it's almost as if you're inviting us to do something that would deconstruct this inheritance and in doing so gives us an opportunity to not just live in a different world but actually you know be co-creators of it first through ourselves and then with others but i don't know if that's a good description of what you're doing so (laughs)
1: um yeah it actually is a a very fair and accurate description, I would say. <laughs> and I, I appreciate um, to use the word intuition that you have, because um, I think in, in large part, that's what you're, you're talking about. Um, Whitehead uses this, as this word prehension as well. And so mm-hmm. think of how we feel our way into the world, how we, how we engage in speculative reality testing, right? I mean, scientists are engaged in this as well. We all are constantly. Uh, animals are, non-humans are as well. Um, they all have cognition. I mean, all the way down. Um, and so I, I agree with the way you frame it insofar as no one has the answer, but the process is the answer in a sense. And so it's mm-hmm. that process yeah. of understanding, not theoretically as a as a speculative exercise that's detached from reality or action or pragmatism, but rather the converse is the sort of dialectical relationship between the two where the theory comes out of the practice and the practice comes out of the theory. And, you know, Mark, you can go to, to Marx and, and, and later thought about dialectics, but um, it's that vision of a future that you communicated. That is an active process of world making and world building. Mm-hmm. I can remember connecting with when I was about 15 even in the ways that you described it, when full disclosure, I, I began just starting to self-educate um, by playing Dungeons and Dragons. You know, just
0: like, <laughs> just like it was just,
1: and I was the DM, and it was like you know, school was interesting, but it wasn't allowing me this transdisciplinary mind space that I was able able to just have complete freedom in in constructing worlds and envisioning worlds in ways that were empirically grounded and not detached from the issues that were, um, a source of struggle for myself and others. Um, and so the work that I'm doing is trying to make that connection. And one, another way that I, um, talk about it is, is, um, I work with a um, group called Courage of Care Coalition, and they like to talk of cultures of practice or communities of practice, mm. and that's really helpful because my experience has been that they're dealing with understanding how this inner and outer split can be reconciled in new ways of relation relationship, new new systems of Of based on relationships that are fundamentally anti-oppressive and that um, resolve issues around colonialism, imperialism, racism, capitalism, anthropocentrism. How do we do that? Um, None of us actually knows, but um, the only way to do it is actually through uh, practice and developing a culture of practice that supports your kind of spiritual development in that direction is essential. There's actually, I believe, no other way. And so I also agree with your earlier framing that the problem is typically you find on one extreme that these things tend towards a kind of theoretical academic discourse that are detached either from an empirical grounded understanding of the issues or also an an instantiation in the body and and in practice. But at the other end, you you notice like intentional communities that are just so localized and in many ways don't get up to the level of scale that I'm, at least in my work, really focused on, which is how do we re-envision a whole new paradigm outside modernity? Yeah. Um, and I think just continuing on this path of developing cultures of practice with other like-minded individuals is the way forward. Um, and there's much more I can say about that, but I think you have mm. your finger on the pulse of, of what I'm trying to accomplish.
0: Mm. It, well, you know, I, I, I should do full disclosure as well. Like uh, I, I didn't play Dungeons and Dragons. And in fact, I was one of those people that I, I, I saw it as something like, oh, did, you know, why are, why are these people just rolling dice and <laughs> talking about dwarfs? I had no idea, <laughs> but uh, but then it's it's interesting because what has actually occurred is, is plus what you said, which is that, you know, what Dungeons and Dragons represents is a kind of, I think, cultural practice that is something rather important, which is it allows us to understand, and you can tell me if I'm wrong about this, but ways of empathizing and relating to other people mm-hmm in a way that is according to rules of a world in which one does not necessarily live in Mm -hmm. and i find that very interesting because i remember i was talking to a friend who played one time and they just said an elf would never do that (laughs) and and i have to admit uh there was part of me uh and i was Mm -hmm. a bit younger so maybe i was also had some chemicals in me so i I wasn't as focused but i said Mm -hmm. to them, well how do you know because Mm -hmm. There's no such thing as elves, so they can do whatever you want them to do. Hmm. And I'll never forget that the answer they gave me was like, no, that's not what an elf would do. Hmm. And, I, and I thought that was really cool because this was a type of empathy towards – empathy that was based in a very deep epistemological shift. And, hmm. and I know that's a kind of pretentious way of saying the, the ways in which one thinks as something else entirely – and then it's forced to relate to others through that. Mm-hmm. So th- when they were saying that, they weren't just saying that, oh, that's like an elf couldn't do that. They were saying more like mm-hmm. an elf wouldn't even conceive of doing that. Like mm-hmm. you're thinking about this as a human and I've been playing this character for a year and I think like an elf when I'm playing this character. So it's like, and I thought that was really interesting because for me, as I've gotten older, I think that's a really important part of thinking about, you know how do we move from things like fantasy, which are, let's watch, you know, Billboard Baggins on a movie screen to actually doorways towards what it would mean to question what you think, you know, and not just what you think, you know, in terms of facts, we're not just talking post-truth media, but Mm -hmm. how do you know what you know and how could you know differently? Mm -hmm. And that is very interesting Mm -hmm. because essentially, you know, I know that it's a huge industry, so we can, you know, I, I, that's maybe a different podcast about how they turned what is essentially just, you know, getting people to buy some dice <laughs> and they have to do all the work of making games to a billion dollar industry. Um, but nevertheless, that thing of that type of imagination, which isn't just sitting around a table and saying, Oh, this is what a different world, but actually through action, forcing oneself to know differently yeah. and in doing so, giving oneself a sense that there is a possibility of knowing differently. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the next step of them, well, how do we move from a journey notion where we can easily categorize that as just fantasy into yeah. an actual praxis and reflective praxis, a practice yeah. for, you know, world creation. And, and that's a, that's a, for me, a, a difficult bridge. And, and I say this to someone who's, who really didn't play Dungeons and Dragons, but I always remember that though. was like, mm-hmm. it's like, Oh, you're not just sitting at a table rolling dice; like you're actually learning to think differently, hmm. like, yeah. which is a really interesting task. You know, I mean, people uh, can spend you know a hundred thousand dollars at a four-year degree for that purpose, or they can, I guess, play Dungeons and Dragons. But um, yeah.
1: yeah, but I, yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, I think two things come to mind just to like <clears throat> drive this point home. Uh, for me in my experiences. One is the thread that has connected that experience that you're, you're tapping into to my present work and body of work is, there's two things. One is um, the activity of being a, <laughs> a Dungeons master, which is what I was at the time, allowed me to expand my understanding of other worlds at the world Scale right at, at the scale of mm. world systems, which is what uh, excited me. So it's it's exactly taking the process of, of of not only speculating and imagining, but also creating a system of rules, uh, creating creating cultures, creating polities, creating economies, creating whole whole world system, right? Um, in which you play by a different set of norms, a different um, system of rules, and you then inhabit that with others. And through a dialogical process, which is the game itself, you begin to experiment with other possibilities, which is exactly what, you know, is the title of your podcast and the sort of common theme that we're orbiting around is how do we begin to inhabit other worlds with others in that kind of culture of practice. And that was a seed, I think, planted when I was 15 years old that has continued to this day. And what I did after playing Dungeons and Dragons at that age was literally translating that into my experience. And that's what led me to China, to Taiwan, to South Asia, to uh, studying other languages and cultures, because it was this sense of transcendence that I achieved through an experience of utter difference. That led me to transform my own perception of reality and my own embodiment and my own relationship to other people. And so it was that, you know, when I was of age to do that, not as just a, a paper based game, sort of <laughs> with, you know, with other friends, when I could do that in real life, I did. Um, and so then it registered in a very different way. Now, today I'm, I'm, sort of almost connecting the loop and trying to figure out what, this is This is my job right now at the One Project, what would a world system look like that is just and sustainable and democratic? And can we connect the seed forms that exist today to each other in a way that creates a counter hegemony to modernity, to Mm -hmm. neoliberal capitalism, right? And can we pour the resources that we have into that in an effective enough way to avoid the worst catastrophes that are literally already happening and on the horizon um, in -hmm. both senses? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: No, and and I think that that's really important. I mean, and, and so I thought it might be then really... Interesting here to just you know take pause and ask you very directly. I mean, you you've kind of I don't know if you've coined it, but I think definitely for me that you're the one who I know has written about it the most. If someone was going to ask you, you know, in almost like a, a, a very simple way for a concept that I know you have thought a lot about, what is contemplative commonings, right? Um, what is it? I mean, I know that a lot of people are now talking about you know a common's existence and they're talking mm-hmm. about commons development and there's a lot of stuff like about cooperative management and even then there's actual projects about like open source problem solving and open source communities and Mm -hmm. all these things but what is what does the contemplative bring to it and why is it that you know this is for you such an important part um in many ways of helping uh these kind of seeds Mm. of a different world grow so what is contemplative commonings, I guess, is a is the straightforward question
1: on that. Yeah. Um and and even though it may seem like a div- a sort of um you know right turn in the discussion, it's actually the perfect sort of segue because at least the way <laughs> I understand it is it's a framing that I constructed to integrate um the inner and outer questions that I had before, uh, going from uh, the field of contemplative studies and more and more into the field of systems design and thinking about political economy and and real large-scale change, the contemplative commons joined this interest that um, has been accelerating, um, especially in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, since Eleanor Ostrom won the Nobel Prize and that there's been a huge mm-hmm. um, increase in the academic discourse and uh, publications of around commons and also in the media um, with a much more expanded notion of what the commons is, not from just uh, the discipline of economics or politics, but from an understanding of what worlds would be born out of a a system that was not predominantly capitalist in orientation, but predominantly commons in orientation. And I realized to really make, um, you know, to really fundamentally resolve some of the issues I mentioned around inequality and democracy and climate change, um, I believe we need to make that shift towards another paradigm. And I know the word paradigm shift is overused, but I actually feel it has purchase um, within this context because we are talking about the collapse of social systems born out of a modern tradition, Um, Mm -hmm. the nation state just being one example. And we don't know what comes next, but I would hope that what comes next is not just dystopia right but is actually a more equitable uh, sustainable world in which resources were distributed amidst the chaos um, to create the conditions for flourishing for all beings not just humans and to do that the way that I see we can you know the the commons really provides um, I think the most compelling alternative to capitalism Um, but I taking my background in philosophy and transdisciplinary studies and everything else into consideration, didn't want to understand the commons, um, like Eleanor Ostrom or or a lot of the commons researchers, just in terms of institutions and norms and rules and regulations, but in terms of what new human being is born out of this shift towards Mm. the commons, right? What new cultures are born out of the shift to the commons? And there's plenty of precedent. I think it just doesn't get enough attention, you know, um, Yeah, Indigenous lifeways in many ways are commons based. I mean, we have many Um, ways of understanding the commons um, that connect to all different cultural geographies as well. And the commons is really the default mode of social and material reproduction for human history. So it's also really modernity that lost sight of the fact that we are relational in in our own human nature and that we can construct systems that allow us to connect both to each other and to the environment in much more sustainable, equitable ways. That Mm. just gives you a taste.
0: No, I I think that's really interesting and important. And I like that, that, you know, I think that the 20th century um, has necessarily given us pause about when we think about a quote-unquote paradigm shift, you know, and put this in words of, you know, what kind of new person is going to be, the immediate thing that comes out is it is, is this kind of a very Orwellian notion of totalitarian regimes of modernity from the, both the left and the right, right? Um, and I think what you're presenting is this kind of way, if I can, of this question about, you know, is still important. It's just that in order to answer it, you can't use the same tropes of modernity, uh, that you know was responsible for the answering of this question in a way that I, I think both of us can agree was you know extraordinarily troubling. <laughs> um, so it's the kind of ways in which how do we ask this question that you know has been asked before, but in a way that doesn't reproduce the very conditions of thought mm-hmm. um, that you know. Would turn it from something liberating into something repressive, and i, I do think that you know this this notion of um, the kind of indigenous is really interesting here because as we can move towards different epistemologies, I always find it interesting about how it how easily people can kind of categorize certain things so it's very easy i think within for many people within a mindset of a kind of, you know, 21st century liberalism to to kind of exoticize indigenous communities and, and put them in a, in a way, or a progressive narrative of, well, that was just, you know, that these are communities that, you know, um, are, are really interesting and exotic, but they have very little relation to what we're doing now. And when you actually deconstruct that history and you say, first of all, I mean, I, I think it's really important and it's a hidden history about how the you know, notions of liberal democracy actually really did and were hugely impacted by non-white communities of practice. I mean, directly, I mean, like, you know, in Mm -hmm. the United States, Mm -hmm. I mean, the relationship of Native Americans to the faking of the logics of the constitution, that's not a coincidence, right? Um, And in fact, you know, there was huge amounts of work and it doesn't get enough sort of play about, you know, when these quote-unquote colonial settlers experienced these you know, massive tribal trade networks that were based on consensus-based decision-making. Mm-hmm. It was something that they really had never experienced before. And it really did impact them in ways that you know, we now just ignore. But it does, it does I mean, I, I say all this because it's a way in which you know, even of opening ourselves up to the fact that we could be different. And not and I mean and, and I think that 's something that I, you know the contemplative I, I appreciate is how do we get out, even for people that I think don't that we would agree with in other ways like so for instance, you know I, I think there's a huge issue in the left right now that even or the social democratic left, if you want to put it that way, <laughs> that even if you agree with the you know, some very simple goals like universal health care right. Mm-hmm the ways in which you have a unidirectional narrative of progress, Mm -hmm. you know, how do you get people to think outside of that trope? And how do you do it in a way that, I mean, you know, when, you know, it's a difficulty because, you know, people are, Mm -hmm. and people on the ground are saying, we're just trying to do whatever works, you know, like this is a discourse that we can play with that people will understand. Mm -hmm. So how do you, how do you get people to think outside of that tropes? How do you get them to think about indigenous knowledge as not something exotic and other and from the past, but something that is, you know, fully relevant and that change is non-linear and that you know things don't happen from A to B and that you know there's a way in which we have to recapitulate our existence to think in more circular terms. Uh, how do you do that, especially in a time when it feels like we have so many urgent questions and it's so difficult to even get small-scale change you know
1: mm-hmm. okay so that's a great question i don't have the answer But, I no, of course not. <laughs> uh, but sure, I've, I've uh, yeah i mean that's a brilliant um question and so to you know i just reflect on how i how i understand it and how i struggle to come to terms with it in my work um so there's so many directions you could take this. Um, I, I, I think the small scale experiments are important. We always have to relate to people on, on where they're at. And, um, you know, whether it's something so focused as like you brought up circularity, um, you know, the circular economy um, has mm-hmm. um, just a framework that is gaining traction. Uh, There are, I think, problems with it with respect to um, the way it's understood from a more business, even capitalist orientation, and how you can close the loop within one given system. But if you're not looking at the world system as a whole and how unequal exchange and colonialism and Mm -hmm. all of these things operate, then um, you're, you're losing sight of the bigger picture. And yet, saying that, I think the idea has a has a broad purchase and a lot of potential. So, even if you're dealing with somebody who is focused on, let's say, just the circular economy, there's a way to broaden the discussion to circularity as a a form of understanding culture as well. And that I think um, our culture is the more circular economy becomes a mainstream notion, the more our cultures will shift towards a less linear. Understanding of time, towards less a linear understanding of the industrial life cycle, towards less a linear understanding of of history, and more towards this circular understanding, um, and and one which is based fundamentally on relationships. And um, so that's just one example. Another, you know, bringing it back to the commons, I, I just about a month ago, published a paper um, called uh, something, it was like the ontological drivers of politics, relational approaches to Mm -hmm. governance and the commons or commoning. Um, In that paper, I worked with Silke Helfrich and David Bollier to continue work that they had done um, in the last five or so years. They did, sort of developed a trilogy of books where they were articulating the same thing that I was thinking about, which is a relational approach to the commons, which became a sort of distinct mm. thread with, within the commons discourse. And, and it was interesting because I met Silke and David at the, at, at the moment where we were both beginning to explore the connection between especially process philosophy, process relational thinking, Um, all of these other movements, um, including indigenous ones, and how they provide a greater understanding of the commons in this more expansive sense, both for researchers to actually see, as you know, apply this sort of theory to see um, the social dynamics Mm -hmm. and the inner dynamics of commoning that were uh, left out of the mainstream scholarship and discourse um but also as a way to begin to contextualize the commons as a real world shift as a real paradigm shift and we and we begin with this metaphor of the onto shift which is an ontological shift which is a way to understand how to address or resolve the issues of modernity we mentioned earlier in the conversation around all the dualisms that were created out of the modern enlightenment and liberalism and the kind of Mm. intellectual traditions that we inherited and begin to think of the alternatives. Another way to answer your question is, you know, so there's a couple, a few ways is like, one, I, I certainly don't, and, and, and I agree with you, um, want to romanticize the the indigenous. And I think that that's an inherently problematic, something you see all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I do instead want to do is move towards a position where um, we're not only critiquing modernity, we're still taking what's good from it and, and sort of... Mm. Um, also integrating it with with its shadow right there's there are a lot of shadows which I think um, as a as a culture we have yet to fully acknowledge um, and it 's just so apparent in climate denialism in the continuing erasure mm-hmm. of black and indigenous bodies um, there are so many shadows of modernity that we' that that are um, just on the news, if if you if you uh, contextualize it in that way. Um, but which I think the relational turn provides a moment of reconciliation between what's good about modernity and integrating that with what was left behind, what was erased, what was colonized. Um, and so that's one way to answer it. Another way, though, is that we were all indigenous. <laughs> you know, mm, we're both, mm. Indigeneity is not something that anyone owns, um, and it was through um, our, let's just say, I'll claim my own white body, as a white, cis-hetero male um, who immigrated from Scotland, England, and Ireland, that's where my ancestry is, to the Americas, I became acculturated within um The sort of capitalist, liberal, democratic hegemony that continues to um, be the sort of mainstream uh, in a way that also does myself a disservice, just like it does everyone else a disservice. And so I think having that stance, right, taking ownership for your own body, for your own acculturation, and then also reconnecting to... That field of possibility that is not just something imagined but is also something inherited it's you know there are lineages of indigeneity within my own traditions that I can reconnect to. There are parts of myself that have been forgotten um, it 's not just a new experience, and so I think you know those are other ways of of thinking through um, how to make this real for people how to how to allow them to connect with it. Um,
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the um, ways that I think is worth taking this further is to actually think about what are the cultures that in our current societies are a bit more relational oriented, right? And I think about how in the midst of this kind of very neoliberal, you know, hyper-capitalist reality, like there's all these self-help cultures and self-help communities. And, you know, um, you you can honestly say that you can see more and more people moving towards even kind of what used to be called kind of new age uh, relationships, right, and ideas. Um, But one of the shadows of that has been actually that, those communities themselves, when they do try to do a relational approach, oftentimes themselves reproduce, I think, sometimes very unhealthy discourses and very unhealthy ways of relating, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you you see a lot of things like that. I feel are very catharsis given, Like, you know, it, it's constantly about connecting with the particular trauma and then overcoming it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and also, there, there's a there can be a real sense in which, you know, I think ironically it reproduces a kind of neoliberal discourse of personal responsibility but it's like you know if you if you put out good things in the world that's what you'll get back so if you're not getting back good things and you're not putting out good things right um and I think on the one hand this shows at a very very profound level that it's not even that you know this notion of relational commonings and this notion of relationality is something that you know would be good to have that it like it really it, it's kind of something in which empirically we can see that there's a profound demand for it. But -hmm. on the other hand, how do we map out types of relational cultures Mm -hmm. that even when they say they're explicitly about relation, oftentimes just reproduce quite, I think problematic and unhealthy forms of relationship. Um, And, and I think, you know, that's for me a very difficult thing because you know, when you do see this, you, you you kind of feel to a sense, well, you know, that maybe sounds interesting as an integrative, I mean, as an integrative practice, right? And I think a lot of people are very interested in this notion of the integrative. But, that, but then, actually, they're as petty oftentimes and as dangerous and as harmful as, you yeah. know, ones that aren't directly around that, you know relationality. So how does one start thinking about a different form of relationship or reframing what relationality is so it it doesn't just reproduce
1: things in a different form? Yeah, this is a fantastic question uh, because, thank you, Um, you know, I I think without you asking this question that there's such a danger in also romanticizing, idealizing the notion of relationality. And I see this all the time. And I think if you didn't ask this question, people might even assume this of my, you know, myself. <laughs> um, not to say that I'm I'm not at danger of doing it, but at least I'm I'm circumspect, right? At least I'm aware of of the question mm. and and actively struggling with it. Um, and I'll and I'll describe how. Um, you know, one one example that comes to mind: Zoe Todd, um, who's who's fairly well known for an article that they wrote about the colonization um of discourse and, and the erasure of indigenous peoples that is happening in and through relationality, right? And that people yeah. like, for instance, Bruno Latour, who is the well most well-known, well-cited social scientist currently, I think, still, is is turning towards and also, you know, informed by Whitehead and 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 I appreciate many of the things that they're doing at the same time um, doing it in a way where it's completely um, not crediting um, other traditions, um, and namely indigenous ones, that have maintained this sense of lineage, which um, Bruno Latour is now just reconnecting with. right? And I think a lot of, I'm using this example um, as a real illustrative one to describe that this is happening all the time and in a lot of the relational discourses, whether it's new materialism or post-humanism or uh, multi-species studies or, um, you know, complex system science or quantum theory or right. Like I read, I, I wrote an article on all these different discourses that were trending. Um, yeah something like relational paradigm and sustainability research that documented the sort of uptake of relationality in academia, but it was often within a Western context that still didn't acknowledge the degree to which it was colonizing. Um, earlier traditions that had sustained or maintained that sense of lineage to to relationality so that's one point mm. I just want to acknowledge okay yeah. another another point though is regarding the new the new age uh, woo-woo right which which i also like five years ago was um writing articles about with Um, And it feels like a different life um, already uh, with Ron Purser and David, you know, David Forbes and Ed Ng and and, and people who are part of this critical mindfulness community who Mm. were politicizing mindfulness and trying to contextualize contemplative studies within a political context because the depoliticization of it uh, created such a shadow That we were really worried about, and we saw um, really having impact. Um, And so, relational—you know—the way that I am, and I am, I I am sort of addressing this is through a politicized healing framework. And in the communities of practice now that I'm I'm doing with Courage of Care and, and and others, it's it's really acknowledging trauma in the body. Um, and and not just trauma in your maybe own history or experience. Some of us have trauma, some of us don't. But also understanding cultural trauma. To some degree, we are all embodying cultural trauma in different ways. Uh, my whiteness, I am struggling with as a cultural trauma. And what do I do with that? <laughs> you know, um, it's it's hard. And so. I think healing with a anti-oppressive and, and trauma lens is really important to do in which I don't see most people doing, especially mm-hmm. within either contemplative circles or within academic circles focused on relationality. I just don't see it a lot in the work. And I think you have to you have to come to grips with your own embodiment, your own um acculturation, your, your relationships, um, in a way that creates genuine transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think without doing that, you're bypassing. Um, and I think a lot of academics in, in the field of, you know, relational thought, what, whatever, you know, who are maybe anthropologists who are doing it, or, um philosophers or uh, complex system sciences are theoretically thinking about it um but they're not connecting at the level of the body and they're not connecting at the level of the culture and i say this with full humility i i am not in any ways you know a fully enlightened being <laughs> I'm nowhere near close i i am i am just con- putting it in this context to say that this is the work and yeah. and, and and really um you can't just talk about relationality or think about relationality, you have to practice it. And to avoid some of the shadows that you mentioned, whether new age or not, whether colonizing or not, you have to do this kind of deep healing work because I think at some level culturally, personally, spiritually, we are all traumatized.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I and That's a really good place, because I think that, in a way, I was really impressed with some of the work that you've been doing recently in terms of the economy and transition, and one of the things that struck me, and maybe you could talk a bit more about this, because you don't necessarily always talk about it explicitly in your work, but was that how do we engage in an active anti-oppression agenda, and then also an active agenda of full-scale you know, transformation in a way that isn't action-oriented so that it bypasses the need to heal. And I think the environment is a really interesting example of something where I've been noticing that even among people who you know, have a very deep commitment to ending climate change and to doing things differently. There, there's a sense of, and, and I have humility myself in saying, I think I tend towards this. So maybe I'm also projecting onto others. Um, but, you know, where you just want to fix things, right? And you just think, well, if we do this, this, and this, then, you know, things will be good. And it's a really difficult thing to have to reflect and understand that, you know, no matter what we do, that marring ecologically is still going to be there to a certain extent, right? It's something that you just can't cover over. It's not something in which, oh, if like suddenly we put in a Green New Deal, you know, the fact that we burned so much of the rainforest just disappears overnight because now we're doing something different. And so I think a lot of it is how do you balance between, you know, just being focused on healing Um, In a a very kind of modern way of, you know, being very like, let's just talk about what happened to, you know, and process it to also not becoming so action oriented, that you're not bypassing the fact that some of these things there isn't a fix for some of them is just a recognition that they happened. And we have to allow that healing to be part of acknowledgement rather than a fix. And I think that's a really difficult dynamic, actually, for a lot of people,
1: personally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, I mean, uh, this is—it's great because we're sort of getting deeper and deeper into the the heart of actually the work, Um, and it and it—you know—you start to strike a chord because it it lands in the the body in a way is like. there is there is to to really create genuine solutions and i and I even pause to use that word solutions because I think typically the way solutions are thought of and used is already bypassing a kind of pause and a kind of healing work it's 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 short circuiting that work like you said to. Just jump into action and there's a sense of urgency around it and so I think mainstream culture also tends towards these um, schizophrenic um, bipolar extremes um, and there's especially within white culture but I think culture at large a tendency to just try to fix things you know and what are the solutions and typically because of the culture we're in, they're like, techno solutions or what, you know, what's the low hanging fruit? What? How can we tweak the system to create um, the greatest benefits at the least cost, right? So we hardly ever entertain at the level of culture, really radical alternatives. Um, so that's not gonna work. <laughs> so, <laughs> What what is going to work is starting and and pausing and, and taking the time to do this healing work as a reorientation of oneself and of the culture at large, which is a deeply, I would say, genuinely transformative process, which is rare, but which is necessary, to then provide solutions that are grounded in this alternative sense of relationality, and in a way that can connect up with others and create a real global alternative that doesn't have the same shadows. And if you don't do that, you're just baking in the problems of the old system and the new system. So Mm -hmm. I'm what I'm describing is just a, you know, multi level systems transformation. And by that, I mean, personal, social, ecological, right? um and it's happening at all different registers um and it's not something that any one of us can do any any community can do it's something that um, takes a coordinated transition and that's what i'm exploring in my work but you can't do it until you really come to terms with the shadows of modern white you know, liberal culture, all all the things that have created climate change and severe inequality and authoritarianism, fascism, and and the things that we're struggling with, um, and approach a healing stance that steps into a new ground and a new kind of relationship and then building systems on that basis. Mm -hmm. There are many Mm -hmm. ways to do that. This is not abstract. So, Bringing it to the level of the average person who may be, you know, a legislator or working with local government or a school teacher or a meditation instructor. There are ways within your context that you can bring the integrity to the work that we're describing, even if it's focused on a smaller set of issues.
0: Mm. Um, mm.
1: But if you, you have a sense for the sort of integrity, I think, of the both healing and transformation that, that is required to create alternative systems without the problems of the old systems, I think that's the general trajectory. And we could talk in more detail of, you know, what, what, what are some ideas or what, what are some uh, communities or cultures that I'm trying to connect with to do that work, but um, I think that's the, the sense. No,
0: I I think one of the aspects that's interesting here as well is that when we move beyond scales of small scale and large scale and start thinking about, you know, what are the ways in which we create, if you will, kind of contagious forms of cultural relationships, Mm -hmm. right? And I think about this in terms of something that, uh, you know, will probably sound a bit out there, so I apologize, but it just got me thinking about this, is that how we so often focus on the symptom as opposed to the cause and when we do focus on the cause we we go to these just kind of structural issues as opposed to understanding this in a more relational way Hmm. and an example i was thinking about is right-wing conspiracy theories in the united states right and the, the simple or obvious answer that a lot of people give is that, you know, well, you know, we have social media and that presents a particular type of knowledge consumption, or you might get something a bit deeper, uh, which is about, you know, uh, there's ways in which people are searching for answers and, you know, elites have let them down. So now they try to find alternative modes and this leads to dangerous directions or, You can get to more critical questions of how this reproduces kind of systemic forms of racism and classism, but in ways that are quite reactionary. But one thing that I I haven't heard really and and I and I found it interesting is that, you know, this is what happens when you don't deal with the trauma of imperialism, right? Mm. And colonialism. Indeed, these are communities and countries in which, while they are part of the quote unquote core. They're part of an extremely destructive and debilitative imperial system, right? And just as in the early 20th century, um, you know, things like the Elders of Zion conspiracy was, you know, this horrible, destructive, disgusting thing that grew out of this ways in, you know, it, it, it was a manifestation of the fact that there really was an imperial world order, right? There really was a a global world order emerging in which people were increasingly having less and less power, right? that I think if you look at now, there's a way in which instead of actually addressing the fact of, let's have an honest conversation about the multi-level pain of living in an imperialist system in which you have very little existential power, in which it feels as if there is a conspiracy against you because there are things happening that don't seem to have rhyme or reason and that there seems to be some people who are pulling the strings and some people not. And also that this is an externalization of the fact that you know, in your own lives, in your own communities, it feels that you're completely disempowered from making changes or even understanding where those changes come from. That instead we just come into a position of blame and into a position of kind of ridicule and also a position of let's go back to easy answers as opposed to these more difficult discussions of well what are the discursive conditions and when i say discursive i mean a a very deep level structure of like you know what were the world systems conditions that produced this type of conspiracy theory culture and what would they have to be differently for them not to be produced and i just find it interesting because i think more and more people know that, you know i don't want to do anything i mean you know things like qn and i mean this does have serious results like th- this is not something that you take lightly you know mm-hmm. or on the other end of it I, I i know some of my listeners but you know as someone who studies data and politics i mean i don't know how much we can tell people that blaming russia for the 2016 election is just factually wrong <laughs> you know like you're looking for an enemy mm-hmm. um and You know, but we know that these create discretionary results, but to actually have these really serious discussions of what were the conditions, what's the underlying logic? Because all of this is, well, they're looking for someone to blame from a position of powerlessness that is very much related to the fact that they have very little existential control at the level of themselves and their communities, right? So power is something out there that seems to be controlling them. And they're looking for the, you know, who is that out there controlling them? Because they certainly don't have control. That I mean, I know that's a little out there in terms of things, but it's just to go back, Like, how do we create these situations in which we are willing to engage in these types of very politicized but very active healing processes and one that are based on integrity where you are neither forgiving the negative aspects of this, but also trying to get to the bottom of where they came from and what you would need to do so that they don't emerge again
1: yeah great um the first thing that comes to mind is capacity building (laughs) yeah Uh, and and by that i'm thinking typically you know people talk about capacity building in terms of like organizations um and systems but i'm also thinking of personal capacity building uh resources Mm -hmm. yourself um because one of the things that comes out in Your further thinking a moment ago is that people tend to default under stress to um, a narrow frame of reference they tend to other they tend to um, collapse they take um, very um, common sort of shapes Um, and, and and not everybody's you know the same but there are you know the, the group I'm working with, Courage of Care, calls it stress shapes. And when we're under stress, when we're facing a threat, right, we take uh, very similar responses to threat. Some of us collapse, some of us um, puff up and, and, and fight it. Some of us um, tend to get in this more either or kind of logic and collapse complexity down to a really reductive um, dichotomies. Um, So until you have built your own personal capacity too, and I also think culturally and organizationally, we need the same kind of capacity to stay with complexity and to stay with discomfort and to stay with seemingly irreconcilable tension, right? You will tend to collapse that complexity into a kind of defense mechanism and coping strategy that often leads to many of the problems you discussed. And so I worry um, on a larger scale that the window of opportunity for building that capacity, personally, culturally, politically, is smaller and smaller, um, because we will reach a point, you know, system science tells us, um, where social and ecological collapse um, passes a certain threshold beyond which we. I, you know, we never had control in the first place, but beyond which we can even repair um, as a species. Mm-hmm. And so I think the call now is to build the capacity per, personally and socially, you know, uh, to um, s- s- allow for a greater understanding of that complexity and all the conditions of all the problems that you mentioned and begin to address those. Now, you know, that that could be another podcast in itself because yep. just picking that apart um, is really is really difficult. Um what are the capacities, the skills needed, right? Um and for everybody it's different. Um but there are some common patterns. Um but the the one main point I'll say first is just that um as I said like Using the example, you came up with a lot of white working class disenfranchised people who, let's say in the United States context, but this is true in, in the UK and a lot of other places through neoliberal reform in the last, you know, pre 2008, uh, you know, there's a 40 year period of sort of neoliberalization of the economy that uh, created no real gains in income for that white working class population, um, created a kind of disenfranchisement, but which those people were unable to also collectively think through the alternatives because they then defaulted towards these regressive kind of political social forms of who is the enemy here? you know they they reverted towards a kind of nativism they reverted towards a kind of um, imperialism building borders um so i think yeah it's an extended conversation that we, we we might want to yeah yeah for later um, but uh I, I would say capacity building um in a general sense
0: no i i think that's a really really um kind of beautiful place and and we have to have you back on because there's so much more we could talk about and I I feel like if we opened up even more like we'd be here I mean wonderfully for another days I mean there's so much I mean we're only scratching the surface but I love that kind of ending it at personal capacity building and understanding that capacity building here is something that is so multi-dimensional and multi-faceted Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and yeah I mean I I think that that is the kind of things of like what capacities are we giving people to actually change the conditions of their existence, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And and I think in many ways, everything else kind of, you know, I don't want to reduce it to that, but that is a key part of any project for liberation or, you know, creating a different world, you know, what is the capacities we're giving people to do that? And what are those, what capacities are necessary? Mm -hmm. So, Zach, I really want to thank you for coming on. I mean, you were fantastic. And we have to have you on again soon because, like we said, we only started scratching the surface. And I think your work, I think your insights are just, I mean, it's exactly the kind of voice that we need right now. So thank you so much.
1: Yeah, it was it was a pleasure. And I definitely feel that we're in the middle of a conversation. So um, <laughs> talk more later. And, and yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks to all your listeners.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Another World is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom, and remember until next time, another world is not only possible, but happening right now.